Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, and bodily injury. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The night of January 6, 1931, was dangerously cold in Otterburn, England. The Foster family nervously waited for their 28-year-old daughter, Evelyn, to come home. Evelyn was a taxi driver, and earlier that evening, she'd offered a ride to a strange man. Usually, her family trusted her to fend for herself, but on those dark roads, it seemed like anything could happen. The family stayed up late, not able to sleep without Evelyn home safe and sound. Around 10.30, they heard a commotion outside the house. A bus driver, Cecil Johnston, was screaming for help. Evelyn's older brother rushed outside and leapt onto the bus to see his worst fears realized. Evelyn was sprawled out on the passenger seat in pain and badly burned. A jacket loosely covered her half-naked body. His knees buckled at the sight. He bent down next to his sister and asked what had happened. Evelyn couldn't speak very well, but she was able to murmur, that awful man's done it. The family rushed Evelyn inside and called the authorities, but the investigation dug up more questions than answers. In a matter of weeks, detectives would wonder if that awful man existed at all. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our final episode on Evelyn Foster. Last time, we covered Evelyn's entrepreneurial spirit and her taxi driving business and her mysterious final customer. This time, we'll explore the events following the brutal attack and the conflicting theories about Evelyn's untimely death. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. 
So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It was roughly 10.30 p.m. when 28-year-old Evelyn Foster was rushed to her bedroom in Otterburn, England. She was in critical condition. Four women surrounded her, her mother, two sisters, and a neighbor. While some fetched medical supplies and called for a nurse, Dorothy, Evelyn's middle sister, spoke up. She believed the attack might be some kind of revenge from one of Evelyn's romantic suitors. Evelyn, was it Ernest who did this? (sighs) Of course not. I don't know who the man was. Well, what did he look like? I can't remember too well. He said he was with a group of men, a caravan of sorts, but he got separated somehow. I don't know what else. He had a bowler hat on. Um, no beard and, um, a dark coat. Lord Evelyn, why didn't you take George Phillipson with you like I asked? I didn't see George on my way out of town. He couldn't have saved me from this anyway. Please, Mother, let me rest. Evelyn fell quiet while her family continued to watch her. The wounds were deeply unsettling. She'd lost skin from her shoulders and arms. Her eyebrows and eyelashes were completely charred. Her eyelids were swollen shut. Both of her hands were badly burned. And that wasn't even the worst of her injuries. Evelyn's lower half had been covered by a coat all evening. When Mrs. Foster removed it, she realized why. The burns below her waist were severe. Clearly, she was on death's door and needed medical assistance. A little after 11 p.m., a nurse arrived at the house. She sprang into action, rubbing lime water and olive oil into Evelyn's skin. Then a local doctor, Duncan McEachran, arrived and took the lead. He used picric acid to help with Evelyn's pain. He couldn't make many more calls about what to do until the family physician arrived. His goal was to keep Evelyn as comfortable as possible while they waited. Around the same time he called Dr. McEachran, Evelyn's father frantically called the police station. Constable Andrew Ferguson picked up. Luckily, he took down copious notes during the discussion. All right, go ahead. Evelyn brought home by one of Foster's bus crews, badly burnt, picked up a man at about 6.30, brought him to the village, and then took him south. Says he became violent about six miles south of Otterburn. That's three miles north of Kirk Welpington. He pulled her out of the driving seat and struck her over the head, threw something over her, and started to drive the taxi. Car catches fire, and Evelyn is left for dead. Man disappeared, possibly on the run. (sighs) Got it. Constable Ferguson could hardly believe what he was hearing. That kind of violence hardly ever happened in Otterburn. He immediately contacted his superior, Sergeant Robert Shanks. Shanks told Ferguson he'd get to the Foster's garage as soon as he could. By all accounts, the suspect had fled long ago. 
So Ferguson didn't make the crime scene a high priority. They needed to focus on Evelyn instead. Ferguson sprinted across the village to the Foster's home shortly after the call. Shanks arrived with McEachran before him around 11. The two officers began collecting statements from the bus drivers. At this point, Evelyn was still conscious and able to speak, but she was fading fast. As friends, family, and medical professionals ran in and out of the room, they might have heard Mrs. Foster aggressively questioning her daughter. She still seemed convinced that one of Evelyn's ex-lovers was to blame. It just doesn't make any sense, Evelyn. A complete stranger in a bowler hat asked you for a ride, then set you on fire? I just can't believe it. Are you absolutely sure nothing else happened? But I I, I am, Mother. I... Every word is true. There's no rhyme or reason to it. You better not be protecting that Ernest Primrose. I might believe he had something to do with this. I told you already. I did not know the man. That's enough, Mrs. Foster. I will not have my patient inundated with questions right now. Mrs. Foster's interrogation became too intense, and Dr. McEachran put a stop to it. According to some sources, he did the same thing when the police tried to speak with Evelyn. Multiple witnesses claimed that he stopped Constable Ferguson and Sergeant Shanks from even entering the room. He might have thought that the police interview could wait until morning, when Evelyn had regained some of her strength. He couldn't have been more wrong. At about 11.45, the Foster's family physician, Dr. James Miller, finally arrived. He had known Evelyn since she was just a young girl. When he saw the extent of her injuries, he had to step out of the room to gather his emotions. He performed a full medical exam with the help of Dr. McEachran. Afterward, the doctors asked Evelyn's mother and sister to join them in the kitchen for a private conversation. Please, let's all have a seat. Dr. Miller, please say something. I'm sorry. In all my years, I've never... Never what? There's no good way to say it. What Dr. Miller is struggling to convey is that, sadly, there is little we can do for Evelyn. Little you can do? You're doctors. Your job is to save lives. So save hers. Margaret, her injuries are too severe. She's a fighter, always has been. But right now, her perseverance is only bringing her more suffering. Don't say that. For once, let's embrace her stubborn nature. Let her prove us all wrong. One last time. I'm sorry, Dorothy. This is a fight she cannot win. Mrs. Foster and Dorothy went back up to Evelyn's bedroom, completely shell-shocked. Now that they knew Evelyn was about to die, they allowed the police officers to speak with her. The two men did their best to gather some information, but Evelyn was in too much pain to give any specifics. The room was also crowded with multiple family members and medical staff breathing down the policemen's necks. Definitely not ideal conditions for an interview. The resulting statement was cursory at best. 
Shanks and Ferguson seemed to assume they could come back and get more details later. It seems like no one had told them about the doctor's prognosis. Constable Ferguson shared the information with the police station, who then contacted neighboring police forces. At 1.45 a.m., precincts from Gosforth and Morpeth sent out motorcycle patrols to cover the main roads. They also sent officers to Pontyland, which might have been the suspect's next stop. The investigation was painfully slow by modern standards. While radio broadcast technology existed in the early 1930s, portable radios did not. So sharing information was much more difficult for law enforcement. It took officers several hours following the attack to actually visit the crime scene and see the burned-out taxi for themselves. And though Evelyn's testimony had prepared them for the site, it wasn't quite what anyone expected. Coming up, the investigators find some evidence that doesn't add up and start to wonder if Evelyn was telling the truth. Hey, it's Carter from Cold Cases, here to tell you about a very special crossover I'm doing with Sarah Turney and the fantastic series Disappearances. In 1959, nine hikers mysteriously died in Russia's Ural Mountains. Over 60 years later, we're still left wondering what exactly happened on Dyatlov Pass. Sarah and I are teaming up to take a closer look. If you're a ParCast listener or a true crime fan, this episode is for you. Follow Cold Cases and check out our deep dive into the Dyatlov Pass incident today. Listen for free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Constables Andrew Ferguson and Henry Proud arrived at the Wolfsnake in the first few hours of January 7, 1931. Two foster employees joined them, Tommy Vasey and Cecil Johnston, one of the men who'd discovered Evelyn. By the time they arrived, the fire had completely gone out. All that was left were cold remnants of an awful crime. Evelyn's mangled taxi, a few burned items, and lots of ash. At the time, the district had no specialist detectives on staff. This became painfully obvious when the police, joined by Vasey and Johnston, began to haphazardly explore the area on their own. The men ignored the most basic rules of modern crime scene etiquette and didn't try to preserve any of the evidence or even note down its original location. Instead, when anyone noticed something of interest, they simply picked it up and walked over to show it to the others. The two employees did their best to help in the investigation, but they were completely out of their element. The constables managed to find something of value, though. On the ground, about a yard from the burnt-out wheel of the taxi, was a woman's purse. Proud picked it up and showed it to Ferguson. Hey, look, Ferguson, a woman's purse. Isn't that interesting? What is it? There's money inside. 
all over a pound. Yeah, it's a purse. What did you think was inside? But didn't Evelyn say that when she met her attacker, he claimed to be low on funds? That was why he was stranded on the side of the road in the first place? True. And? So? Then why didn't the man rob her? Well played, Proud. Something here is not quite adding up. While the ragtag investigative team picked apart the crime scene, Evelyn's condition continued to deteriorate. Around 12.30 a.m., she lost her vision altogether. Mrs. Foster was overwhelmed with grief and left the room. The district nurse remained with Evelyn. Neither of them had heard Dr. Miller and McEachran's bleak prognosis and weren't quite prepared for what happened next. What will the world look like without my sight? I suppose it won't look like much at all. Don't jump to conclusions, dear. Time is better than any medicine. Healing comes with patience. I wouldn't be able to drive a taxi ever again. Shh, Evelyn, you must rest. Everything is going to be okay. Sadly, I don't think losing my sight matters much at this point. Oh, don't say that, dear. I'm afraid I won't recover from this. Somehow I know it. I, I just feel it. Please, don't leave me here to die alone. I'm not going anywhere, and neither are you. That's enough of that kind of talk. Now please, just rest, dear. Within hours, Evelyn lost consciousness. Her death was clearly imminent, and the doctors felt they'd done everything they could. They administered a large dose of pain medication to make her comfortable in her final hours. Then around 4.30 a.m., Dr. Miller headed home to Bellingham. About an hour later, Dr. McEachran followed suit. The battle was over, and the family needed some privacy. But then at 7.15 a.m., Evelyn unexpectedly regained consciousness for a brief moment, according to some sources. In that time, she was able to give her mother one last message. Mother! Mother! Evelyn, I'm here. I know you can't see me, darling, but I'm right here with you. Nurse Lawson is too. That's right, dear. You are loved, and we are here. Mother! I have been murdered. After saying that, the 28-year-old Evelyn Foster died. With her gone, the investigation had to enter a new stage. Luckily, they also had a new lead detective. The scattered police team realized that they were out of their depth. They gave the case to a senior officer from another town, Inspector Edward Russell. Russell was far more capable than his predecessors. He had experience and he had a plan. Or he thought he did, at least. By 9 a.m., he was already overwhelmed by the case. The description of the suspect had already made the rounds, and sightings of strange men in bowler hats were rolling in. According to Evelyn, the man also said he was traveling in some kind of a caravan before he saw her. Tips about male travelers also flooded the phone lines. The investigators became particularly interested in a trio of men 
who were sighted in Rochester on the night of the attack. They stopped at an inn on their way south and ordered whiskey. The landlord there said he didn't like the look of them and suspected that they were hitchhikers. He warned the driver to be careful about traveling with strangers. It's unclear why the police became so interested in this group specifically. In all honesty, their behavior doesn't sound too out of the ordinary for rural travelers. But they were heading in the same direction as the attacker, and perhaps that was enough. The investigators took bold steps to gather more information. At 6.30 p.m. on January 7th, a little more than 24 hours after Evelyn's attack, police sent a description of the men to the BBC. It was read over the air later that evening. At 10.30 p.m. yesterday, a young woman named Foster, driver of a hackney car, was found badly burned near her car just off the highway, six miles south of Otterburn in Northumberland, in a very injured condition, and she has since died. Police are anxious to trace a four-seater, closed dark colored car, registration TN, followed by four figures, with the last or next to last two. The men told the manager they were going to London. Any information concerning the car or the men should be communicated to the chief constable of Northumberland. People all over the country heard the broadcast that night and it turned Evelyn Foster into a household name. It didn't help catch her killer, though. The three male travelers contacted the authorities just a few hours after the message aired. The detectives interviewed them and realized they had no connection to the incident. That same day, Inspector Russell took a trip to the crime scene. He had to see the site for himself. And two details in particular stuck out to him. One, Evelyn claimed the man set her taxi ablaze while it was still in motion. However, the burn marks on the grass suggested the car was completely stationary when it caught fire. And two, there was a can of petroleum fuel in the back of Evelyn's taxi. It was standing upright and seemed completely untouched by the fire. Most importantly, the cap had been removed. Evelyn claimed that her attacker started the fire with a small bottle of liquid accelerant. But at the scene, it looked more like Evelyn's petrol tin had provided at least some of the fuel. Clearly, to Inspector Russell, she'd left out a few details in her account of the evening. In order to get the full truth, the authorities launched a formal inquest. This is a public process that uses a jury to help determine the facts of a case. In this instance, investigators needed to officially nail down Evelyn's cause of death. The coroner, Philip Dodd, started reaching out to local men to build the jury. From there, the investigation continued. More reports started to flood in about suspicious men being detained and questioned. Neighboring police forces reached out to offer help. Even the public wanted in on the hunt for the suspect. Owners of bloodhound dogs offered their canines to help detectives sniff the culprit out. Even with so much enthusiasm, though, the investigation faced a difficult roadblock. No one really knew who they were looking for. Evelyn's story couldn't be backed up by a single eyewitness. She'd claimed the man had been riding with an entire group of other travelers, yet there were no witnesses to a group that matched her description. Evelyn also said the man was standing on the side of the road before he hailed her down. 
No one could corroborate that story either. By Saturday, January 10th, many observers were doubting Evelyn's account. Local newspapers openly questioned her version of events. But then, right as public sentiment began to turn against Evelyn, a witness came forward to turn the case on its head. Uh, hello, my name is Bessie McDonnell. I live a few miles south of town. How can I help you? Uh, I've been keeping up with that story in the paper. You know, the one about that poor girl who was burned to death. Yes, ma'am. Do you have any information about the case? I read today that they think she's lying. Uh, that maybe she made it all up. Well, I don't believe that. I think she's telling the truth. And what makes you say that? Because that night, when she claimed she was driving in her taxi with that awful man, I think I saw them. Both of them. Coming up, we'll explore Bessie McDonald's claims. And now, back to our story. It had been just four days since Evelyn Foster was found badly burned outside her taxi. She claimed she was attacked by a mysterious traveler, but the authorities hadn't found a single eyewitness who could corroborate her story. Until January 10th, 1931. That was the day Bessie McDonald called the Northumberland police and changed everything. Please, ma'am, elaborate if you would. It started with me going out to Mrs. Purvis's shop to fetch some dairy. I wasn't there long. I just gabbed with the ladies for a bit, and then I went home. What time was it, ma'am? I'd say around 8.30. It was a quiet night, not a single car on the road. I was nearly home, and that's when I saw it. Saw what? Evelyn Foster's taxi. I heard the brakes squealing. Then as I stepped on my front porch, I looked back and saw her doing a U-turn. She was speeding back north. Bessie McDonald's story matched Evelyn's perfectly. And at least one officer took it seriously. He tagged it as important, but there wasn't much follow-up beyond that. Most of the investigators were starting to believe that Evelyn was lying. This new testimony couldn't dissuade them. And looking back, it's impossible to know how many other tips might have been dismissed in a similar manner. By this point, the police had decided their new angle was the only one worth following. They didn't seem to consider any alternatives. That being said, their skepticism toward Evelyn's story made some sense. Because as the investigation continued, they found more and more issues with her version of events. For one, the bartender at the Percy Arms Hotel confirmed that he hadn't seen a man in a bowler hat looking for a ride that night. The landlord's daughter didn't see anyone who fit his description either. Police canvassed local hospitals, asking if they treated anyone for burns after the attack. They hadn't. Potential leads were drying up. There wasn't much to do but wait until February 2nd when the official inquest into Evelyn's death began in Otterburn's Memorial Hall. Philip Dodd, the local coroner, oversaw the proceedings. Before allowing the first witness, Dodd presented a statement to the jury. He reminded them that Evelyn's side of the story shouldn't be treated as fact, and he encouraged them to let the evidence guide their judgment. Essentially, he gave the impression that Evelyn was lying 
until proven otherwise. By this point, the investigation had split into two opposing camps. The police were on one side, and they were convinced that Evelyn was lying about the way she died. The Foster family was on the other. They trusted in Evelyn and firmly believed what she told them was the truth. A lawyer was assigned to represent each of the camps. A man named Thomas Headley Smirk argued in support of law enforcement, while Ernest Bates spoke on the Foster family's behalf. As the inquest got underway, each called witnesses to the stand. Evelyn's mother, Mrs. Foster, was one of the first. She recalled the harrowing night of January 6th and laid out all the details that Evelyn provided in her final hours. The jury followed along with her every word. The examination took an uncomfortable turn, however, when Smirk leveled a series of awkward questions. Mrs. Foster, on the date of Tuesday, January 6, 1931, was your daughter experiencing the normal indisposition of a young woman? Excuse me? Unbelievable. Mrs. Foster, do you understand what I'm referring to when I speak of the normal indisposition of a young woman? Her uh, cycle? So this is what it's come to. I'm simply gathering information, Mrs. Foster. Could Evelyn have been unwell on January 6th? We all know how women can behave at that time of the month. Your question is ridiculous, Mr. Smirk. My daughter was murdered, and you're asking if she was on her course? If you must know, I cannot say, but Evelyn was not different in any way during those times. Now let's move on, please. The lawyer continued his ignorant line of questioning. His barbs insulted and demeaned the Foster family as if losing Evelyn wasn't hard enough. When that was finally over... He moved on to point out the flaws in Evelyn's story. He called in an automotive expert, William Jennings, who'd examined the wrecked taxi closely. In his opinion, the car hadn't been set on fire while it was in motion, as Evelyn described. The blaze had probably started when it was already parked. In fact, nothing supported her account of a raging madman grabbing at the wheel and dousing her with accelerant. According to Jennings, the entire tale sounded like it was fabricated. A medical expert named Professor Stuart MacDonald also gave some testimony. He had examined Evelyn's body two days after her death and found no indication of a physical struggle. While the outermost layers of her skin were terribly burned, there wasn't any bruising underneath. There was also no sign that she had been sexually assaulted. As the inquest went on, the coroner brought in his own theories about Evelyn's death. He seemed to be obsessed with the fact that her most severe burns were on her legs. He took it as proof that she'd poured the gasoline on the car herself and unknowingly spilled some on her legs in the process. When asked if this theory actually held any water... Professor McDonald wasn't able to make a clear call. It was speculation. At long last, after the other witnesses testified, Thomas Headley Smirk gave an impassioned speech about why Evelyn Foster might have set her own car on fire. 
His explanation? Money. There were two different insurance policies that covered Evelyn's taxi. If she successfully destroyed it, she would have ended up with a handsome payout. And according to Smirk, she'd fallen on hard times financially. Up until this point, at least some members of the jury were probably leaning towards Smirk's alternate scenario. But this final statement gave everyone pause. All the jurymen knew Evelyn and her family personally. They were sure her taxi business was thriving when she died. And the Fosters were doing well for themselves, too. The motive just didn't line up. It seemed like Smirk's theory was completely made up on the fly. The jury exited the memorial hall to deliberate. After two hours, they emerged from seclusion ready to present their verdict. We believe that Evelyn Foster was murdered. As surprised reactions and cheers came from the crowd, tears ran down the relieved faces of the Foster family, and the coroner shook his head in disagreement. It was a win, but in the end, they were no closer to finding out who killed Evelyn. And unfortunately, the family never got the closure that they were wishing for. Almost 90 years have passed, and even professional researchers can't come to any firm conclusions. Jonathan Goodman, the author of The Burning of Evelyn Foster, admitted that during his extensive investigation, he continued to waver about what actually happened. Only a few things are certain. The case is incredibly confusing, and it's also a product of its time. The police made mistakes that might have doomed them from the beginning. They mishandled evidence, jumped to conclusions, and seemed to automatically assume that Evelyn was untrustworthy because she was a female. If the detectives actually listened to Evelyn and the other women involved, the entire process might have gone differently. For instance, they could have actually looked into Bessie McDonald's testimony and not wasted their time charting Evelyn's menstrual cycle. No matter what conclusion you draw, it's clear that Evelyn Foster was a victim. And whether the fault lay with a mysterious attacker on the highway or the sexist era she lived in, her death was an unmitigated tragedy. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next time with a new episode. For more information on Evelyn Foster, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Burning of Evelyn Foster by Jonathan Goodman, as well as Death at Wolf's Nick, The Killing of Evelyn Foster by Diane James. Extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. 
This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Thomas Wortham, edited by Kylie Harrington and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Mickey Taylor, recorded by Alex Button, produced by Bruce Gatovich and Aaron Larson, and sound designed by Carrie Murphy. It stars Brian Green, Joe Hernandez, Melissa Medina, Sammy Amounts, Cameron Nicod, Julian Smith, Rebecca Thomas, and Laith Walshlager. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. <laughs>